Hello, welcome to the second episode of the Truth About Cars podcast, also known as the TTAC podcast. I'm the managing editor of Truth About Cars. My name is Tim Healy. I am based in Chicago, where it's nice and gloomy and rainy today. I'm here on March 18th, and I'm joined along with uh, two of our staff contributors, Matt Posky out of Michigan, who's our news contributor, and freelancer extraordinaire Matthew Guy, who's based in Eastern Canada. And we're talking today, we're going to be talking gas prices, Acura Integra, the best cars of 1997, and more. So, guys, let's get it kicked off with gas prices. I want to hear your thoughts on why they're so high and what we can do, what can be done about it. Uh, the gas prices issue, because literally whatever complaint or theory you have about why they're so high is probably correct. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's really just like a perfect storm of like like problems. Like, the cost of crude oil went up. Um the price of refineries or refining went up uh, distribution prices went up and there keeps being like additional like problems. Like I was really complaining. I mean, I don't, I don't have much of a social media presence, but I think the last few things I posted were me like complaining about um, the U S current policy as, as far as like drilling and stuff is, is concerned. And everyone got so mad at me. Like, well, it's not, you know, this, it's not just this problem. And I'm like, yeah, right. It's not like, Right. The war in Russia is a problem, like, or then the Ukraine is, is is a problem. Like the the suspended like leases on drilling, like that's a problem. The fact that we s- slowed down production for a while and then had to ramp it back up when everybody started, you know, driving again, like that's a problem. So there really isn't like a one uh, size, you know, fits all solution. It's just sort of like problem after problem after <laughs> problem, like being dumped on top of each other. You're right. There's no real magic bullet like in some past gas price spikes where you can point to something and say, hey, that's what's causing it definitively. Um, The average fuel price in America is just below $4.35 a gallon. Um, Up where I am with the exchange rate, the average price per gallon is around six fifty. dollars and yeah, you the, guys are getting those european prices right and well bc has it arguably one of the one of the major centers that has it the worst in terms of price they're over seven dollars a gallon if you were to do the conversion around 724 yeah what does that work out to be per liter maybe like two and some change uh yes it just it just barely crested two for regular 87 octane and that's around i'd say a dollar 92 per liter yeah it's really sad I'm, i mean the good thing is um everybody and their mother was over the last couple of weeks was like it's just going to keep going up it's going to skyrocket over the next you know couple of weeks and actually it slowed down and even went yes. down in some places so the um you know the unbridled terror seems to be maybe a little unfounded i think it's going to be bad it's definitely going to keep going up uh, throughout the summer because it always does Mm-hmm. But it might not be um, the nightmare scenario, you know, you have to sell your firstborn to get a tank of gas that everyone was, was uh, afraid of. Right. Do I want to pay the rent or get a tank of fuel? They're the same <laughs> price these days, right? So, yeah, it might not be qu- quite that bad. Right. <laughs> it's still going to be bad, but I'm still driving bad, the though. Challenger all summer. I don't care. That's. Yeah, if gas prices are at this uh, level. I'm going to hear every penny. So, 
Yeah, I, it's... <laughs> yeah. You're really gonna enjoy cruising. You're like, I better, I better have a good time going out. <laughs> they are insane. I, I, I don't have a ton to add. I think Matt uh, Posky's right that there's more than one problem and, and not all one magic bullet or one size fits all solution. But I will say, just driving around Chicago last week, I saw prices over five twenty a gallon. And that's pretty high uh, for our standards. And I don't know if I've ever seen that before in this area. Now, it is a little higher in the city. We have city has higher taxes in the suburbs. Uh, I believe there may be fewer gas stations. So there are just not as many, not as much competition that drives prices up. And a lot of these gas stations are near a highway. So definitely kind of, you know, they get people who are coming in from the suburbs or out of town and, and just want to pull off and get the, get gas to the nearest uh, gas station. And some of these stations were pretty close to a highway. So they were probably a little higher than, and other stations around, I paid, I think, $480, uh, $479 to refill a test car last week in my neighborhood. I'm a little bit further off a of highway. So, you know, that's a little bit uh, not quite as bad, but still pretty high. But it's just amazing to see prices that are at this rate. You know, 5 bucks a gallon is just insane to me. And uh, I, I, I hope it kind of goes down soon. One thing I have seen, and I don't want to get too political on this because I don't really know how accurate this is, but I definitely have seen that. And, and, and president Biden even mentioned it, that uh, the price of a barrel of oil has actually gone down over the past week or so yet gas prices keep going up. So I, I've always, I'm kind of curious what's going on there. Is it just a cash grab from the uh, gas oil prices, companies or, or something else? Gas prices actually went down a little bit over the last couple of days. Um, and you can argue that like, you know, oil prices are still kind of high, but like, yeah, oil companies are being greedy. Like they're making, they made a lot of money uh, at the end of last year. And that's continued on for the last few months. Like they're doing really well. So you can be mad at the oil companies. You can you can be uh, mad at the Biden administration's like energy policies, because I mean, when you suspend drilling, or you only lease out land that you know might not might be a little more costly to drill on, you might not get as much product from. Like that's going to drive up price. Um, I mean, the only thing that really hasn't changed is taxes, which is funny because the government a couple of weeks ago was talking about suspending. Uh, the gas tax for like a full year, which I would argue is, is the worst, <laughs> the worst solution, because it just sort of like pushes everything back. Like, mm. yeah, you won't be paying as much in gas, but you know those costs are going to reemerge later. Like, that, no matter that what. was actually uh, I didn't mean to tear up there. But that was actually one of the few things that kind of unites the right and the left. Is uh, I saw both liberal and conservative economics, excuse me, liberal and conservative economists were saying like this is a terrible idea. And they both kind of agreed on why. And I was like, hey, once in a while, the left and right can't agree on something, right? <laughs> but, um, yeah. Yeah, the you thing can't push this sure. back indefinitely. Oh, for sure. I for mean, sure. you can I mean, you can argue, like, that uh, the higher prices are, are, are worth it, too. Like, if you're really hyper into, like, transitioning to renewables and uh, you, you think the EVs are the only way to go and, like, that's how we should be, like, obviously, I don't feel that way. But if you really believe that, like, okay, like you can you can be uh, on board for the higher prices. But it was nice to see anybody finding common ground on anything with uh, the suspension of the gas tax. Right. And it's right. a rare thing in on either side of the border up here, too, <laughs> to get everyone oh, to agree on something like that. Oil I'm prices sure. about a year ago, they were around $58 the barrel. Um and the yeah. average and USA was, average gas price was wild. Gas price was over. It was around three bucks. I'm just looking at a chart here. Um, For you? Uh, no, that was the USA average. Uh, oh, really? I th- I felt like it was lower than that this time last year. I, I felt like it was wild how low it was. Absolutely. 
I felt like I was getting like do- less than two dollars some sometimes. Around when the pandemic gallon, first started, I mean. it really bottomed out, didn't it? Well, I got to that point where uh, they couldn't store it. Like no one was driving, and they just every every oil company was like, "Oh, we're running out of like storage capacity." So yeah. gas prices went negative, or oil prices went negative. Obviously, fuel prices aren't because it they'll never trickle down to us. But <laughs> it won't. Will <laughs> um, no, that's never going to happen. But yeah, it kept it really, really low. But again, like as good as that was, that was also kind of part of the problem. Like yeah. it, there, there was a surplus of gas. No one was driving. So, you know, everyone stopped pumping for a while. And now, you know, everyone's pumping again. You could argue that gas prices would go down uh, even more if, you know, we were drilling more. We had some of those pipelines, like if Keystone XL happened, I can't say with 100% certainty gas prices would be lower today hmm. but i mean if you think about it like it was mainlining you know fuel from canada directly to like the gulf refineries right like where we have the most refiners in the country so it probably you know would have made a difference but yeah like at the end of the day like there's just so many you know moving parts that just sort of either stopped or changed we kind of changed course on some stuff and it just hasn't worked out for the consumer I am curious, and this could be a story idea. Maybe we're doing a little bit of our editorial meeting here on the podcast, but I am curious how gas station owners uh, are kind of making out because everything I've always heard anecdotally is that they don't really make money on gas. They make money on a convenience store, uh, on snacks and soda and all that sort of stuff. So I I would love to maybe talk to a couple of gas station owners and say, you know, is this benefiting you? Is this hurting you? Is it driving people into the People have to get gas no matter what, so it probably doesn't change the amount of foot traffic they get. But I, I definitely am curious how to fix their business. I know we're pretty rural where I live, um, and the thinking is a little bit different than in some major markets. But when a couple, when it went over two dollars per liter here, um, some rural gas stations started in started introducing you have to pay before you pump, right? And that's mm-hmm. not unusual in a lot of markets, but in some rural places, man, it's like, oh, you don't trust me, huh? And those gas stations actually lost business to other stations that didn't have pay before you pump. <laughs> mm. Interesting. That's kind of also... that's kind of funny. It is, but yeah, I can see that. I can see how that could happen too. Like, even like the pricing. Like, I I went from New York City, where like every gas station was giving you the exact same price, right? Um, and then I moved out into the boonies. And they're kind of, you know, scattered throughout. And like Tim was saying, the ones close to either the ones that are sort really isolated or right off the expressway, they always have, you know, five, maybe five or six cents higher prices. So, I mean, I'm sure some people are making a little bit, but yeah, you have to wonder, like, I mean, even after like, you know, a full week, like, are those prices really making, are you really making that much more money on gas? Mm-hmm. at like six cents more usually it isn't that much like six cents is the most i've ever seen but yeah that's usually it's like you know two two or three cents that's not a that's not much on a gallon of gas because even if you fill up a truck at 30 gallons you do the math that's a dollar on a tank it's it's not even right. paying one fifteenth of a wage for someone you know per hour i am curious about the pay at the pump thing that you were just talking about uh, how it affects foot traffic in general obviously like you said, and, and some stations that switch to that probably upset customers by saying, oh, you know, they said, oh, you don't trust me anymore. But I've always wondered, you know, 
where I live in the city, most gas stations are paid pump or yeah. you swipe your credit card before you pump. And then I've always wondered if that actually hurts. And I know we're kind of sidetracking a bit, but I've always wondered if it actually hurts the sales in, in terms of uh, concessions or snacks. So because, you know, if it's nice weather out, I'm not going to go inside. I'm just going to swipe my card, pump and go. Whereas in the old days, I might have had to go inside to pay. And maybe while I'm inside as an impulse, oh, maybe I'm a little hungry. I'm going to get a Snickers bar or whatever. Oh, maybe make yeah. a couple extra bucks. So I've always wondered if that hurts their business, helps their business. Because the other, the flip side of that is if you pay before you pump it, obviously there's a security security issue there, making sure no one's stealing any gas. So I've always kind of wondered about that, too. That's Now that's a separate issue from gas prices. I'm mean, just kind of thinking out loud here. But it definitely mm-hmm. is something that I've always been a little bit curious about. You're right, because almost right. every time that I would step foot into a convenience store, I'm coming away with a bottle of Coke or a mm-hmm. bag of chips or something. Oh, yeah. I mean, I buy a bottle of water at a gas station all the time because I'm just all of a sudden notice I'm thirsty or whatever. Oh, yeah. Mr. Healthy buying water instead of Coke. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, both. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on my mood. I have tried to cut back on soda as I've aged, but definitely, <laughs> definitely a little bit of both. So <laughs> That's awesome. So we will be actually wrapping up our first segment here. We've been discussing the high fuel prices and what can be done about them, if anything at all can be done. And coming back into our next segment, we'll be talking, we'll be shifting gears and talking about the Acura Integra and the Subaru WRX STI or lack thereof, as well as another question about Acura's products that we should address uh, going forward. So join us in just another minute or two, and we'll be talking Acura and Subaru here on the T-TAC podcast. Welcome back to the second episode of the T-TAC Podcast. My name is Tim Healy. I'm the managing editor of truthaboutcars.com. Here with our news contributor, Matt Posky, and our freelancer extraordinaire, Matthew Guy. And we are talking gas prices, new cars, and eventually the best cars of 1997. But before we take our walk down memory lane, memory lane excuse me, we're going to talk about a new car that is bringing back an old nameplate, coincidentally, from that era. We were talking about the Acura Integra, which was just unveiled in the past week or two. Well, officially unveiled. Uh, Honda had already shown the uh, kind of the uh, the body style, but the, the the car's official stats were unveiled this past week. Uh, you can get a manual transmission if you want to buy the top trim A spec performance version. And my initial take, obviously, we haven't driven the car yet, and I don't know yet if we'll be invited to drive it and when that first drive will be, but. Um, my take on it just on paper is it, 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 I actually don't mind the way it looks. I think some folks have found it ugly. I, I don't. I think it actually is a fairly attractive car. But uh, my problem with it is it's way too close to the Honda Civic which, on which upon which it rides. And Honda needs to really differentiate any car that's going to be based on the Civic if it's going to have an Acura branding, if it's going to have luxury branding. And the problem is, you know, why would you pay several thousand dollars more for an Acura, when you can get the, you can get a Civic that's basically the same car for a lot less money. Uh, I realize there might be some features that are standard or available on the Acura that are not on the Civic, and I realize the dealer experience is probably better at a luxury brand. But is that worth five to six to seven thousand dollar difference, especially if you're looking at an A spec Integra versus a Honda Civic SI, which is also with a manual transmission? So if you're if you're an enthusiast on a budget, you can get a Civic SI for like twenty eight thousand dollars. The A-spec, we don't have exact pricing yet, but it would probably be, I would guess, around thirty-five. So you're looking at a $7,000 difference for essentially the same vehicle. 
one just has an acura badging, acura badging and probably a little bit nicer materials inside. Is that worth it to you guys? Um, I'll throw it out to you guys and see what you guys have to say. I have no opinion on this card. I don't. I just feel like they're they are making the ILX and they're like, oh, you know what? We should call it an Integra. There's nothing special about the car, like the CVT. Like, what's the horsepower? It's 200, right? 200. I believe so. yeah, it's right around 200. Yeah. Right. So it's it's uh, it's ten more than an Integra Type R from 25, 26 years ago. Like, I don't get it. I don't understand. I don't understand why anyone would be. I don't know. Jones in for this car, even the A spec. It, it doesn't seem bad. It doesn't seem like there's anything wrong with it. It's just I don't know. If you're gonna bring back an old nameplate, like why wouldn't you make it more exciting than this? Why wouldn't you? I know that the Integra has historically been like linked to the Civic, and you know it's they can say that it's got this pedigree that's tied to the the SI, and I'm sure they're gonna come up with a you know a Root and Tootner one after you know a year, but. I just saw it and shrugged. It's like, I don't care. I don't really care about Acura at all anymore. <laughs> yeah, a lot of folks don't. That might be the problem. And I mean, it's it's just a TSX. Like, what, what makes this car better than the TSX? That's a good question. I don't know if we can answer it until we drive it, honestly. That's, that's fair. Although, I, mean, yeah, I mean, on paper. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. I will say that, though, if this marks some sort of return to actual names at Acura, then I am all for it. Um, <laughs> yeah, real names. I hope, I hope they revive stuff like the. They had such great names, the Legend and the Vigor. Yes, Those they did. Fantastic names. So I, I hope that this is kind of like I know that this is completely different, but Lincoln did the same. Uh, brought back a few names and got rid of the alphanumerics. And up here in Canada, we had the um, ILX, and then before that, we had the CSX. And they were both um, civics with, you know, a suit and tie. And right. they weren't invisible. I don't know what the actual sales figures were. I'm sure they weren't tremendously robust, but they were around. So I think there might be a place for this in the eyes of some people. I'm 42 and I'm going to be like, ooh, Integra. That's awesome. So... I think yeah. it'll, have, it'll have that appeal for some people. And for, I, for read, sure. I read that um, over 70% of reservations that they have so far are for the manual. I saw that as well. It, the thing is, it did come from the PR people. So I was like a little skeptical. But fair but, enough. <laughs> but uh, it's probably it's probably true. But they, the way I've always read PR is they don't really lie to you so much as they just present the best facts forward, right? <laughs> or the most desirable facts forward. So technically, it's true. But it's also spun, right? But, well, fifty-seven percent of all statistics are made up half the time. Right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Lies, damn lies, and statistics. No, uh, no, Matt. Like I, I'm with you on the uh, the age thing. We're about the same age. I'm just about half a year younger than you, or so. Yeah. And I remember the Integra nameplate as well. Uh, you know, growing up, I was never really into that car for whatever reason. It just wasn't on my radar. But I definitely remember hearing about how great it was and how fun mm-hmm. and. And I, I was actually a big fan a little bit later on was the RSX. Uh, that car was a blast. I, mm-hmm. I, I heard it was a blast to drive. I can't recall if I ever drove one. Mm-hmm. I know I always liked the way they looked. And even today, if I see one in the parking lot, I'll kind of turn my head. Uh, the ILX, I thought, was was really a disappointment. The last time I drove one was a four-cylinder, fairly base model because they had a manual. And the only way to get a manual in that car was to have the base. And I just remember thinking, this is actually, a, I remember thinking to myself, this car is a blast to drive. 
I could see owning it because it's just so much fun to drive. But what is the point to pay for the Acura name? Mm. The, the the suit and tie that it wore wasn't a very nice suit and tie compared to the Civic. It wasn't really just was not that dressed up. And I just didn't understand why you would buy that over the Civic. Now, this new Integra, at least on paper, does look a little nicer, both inside and out, not just the exterior styling, but the actual materials. The photos I looked at when, when kind of going over the press release, it does look like the inside will be a little nicer compared to this current Civic. And the buyer who buys the Acura will actually see more difference than an ILX buyer would have seen, you know, those how long ago that was, I think 10 years now. But um, again, I just don't understand the uh, the reason reasoning behind not differentiating the car more from the Civic. And if you look at the pictures, that the steering wheel looks almost the same, the, the infotainment looks the same, the dashboard. And I understand there is there is a cost savings there. And it, but like you get into a Lexus ES, this is always the, this is always the example I'll ever go to, as long as Lexus and Toyota are doing what they do. If you get into a Toyota Camry and then Lexus ES, you can tell that the ES is based on the Camry, but you can also tell it's much nicer. And there's a difference there. It's it's real subtle, but it's there. And I, I just don't see that with the Acura Integra over the Honda Civic. Uh, and there's been a few other vehicles across the luxury brands. Where I see that like Infiniti has that problem. Sometimes you can't tell that the Infiniti is much more special than a Nissan, for example. Or, or Lincoln over uh, over Ford or Cadillac over GM. So like lesser GMs like Chevy and Buick. But so it's a problem for a lot of luxury brands. And I think right now Acura just needs to kind of set the Integra apart more. And the funny thing about it is you get an RDX, which is very similar to a Honda CRV, And there really is a differentiation. There really, it really does look different. Definitely feels different, feels nicer, feels more luxurious. Same thing with the MDX and the Pilot. The Pilot is much more sporty to drive. Again, looks different, feels more luxurious. So Acura definitely is capable of differentiating their cars from Honda. But it feels like the Integra was rushed to market so quickly that they just didn't put the extra effort in. Now, again, this is all on paper. We haven't driven the car. We haven't spent – I don't think I've seen it up close yet at an auto show. I can't remember if I've seen it at Chicago or L.A. last fall. And if we did, it wasn't the full version anyway. So, you know, maybe when we see the car in person and get a chance to drive it, we'll change our opinions a little bit. We always, there's always that possibility. But on paper, I'm just looking at photos. It does not look like uh, it's really standing out from the Civic at all. And while we're on the topic of Acura, I wanted to ask you guys too. We were discuss- I was discussing with another person in the Vertical Scope Empire yesterday. Why didn't Acura, instead of making the Integra, or why didn't they or why don't they? And perhaps it's in the product plans. We just don't know about it. Why didn't they come up with a three-row SUV to a one size bigger than the MDX to better compete with the Audi Q7 and the BMW X7? And we were kind of thinking, you know, maybe Acura needs something like that. What do you guys think? Should they should they go down that road, or, or is Acura better served kind of with the product line they have now? Yeah, from a sales perspective, it seems like it would make sense. But like, what kind of car would this would this be? Like, I remember you talked about it before. Like, you said something like an X7 rival, and I was yeah. like, whoa, that's that's pretty high end. I mean, what does that start at? Almost 80 grand? Yeah. So, X7? so Column Wood and I, and for those who don't know, Column Wood works with Auto Guide, our, our parent company. Column and I were discussing, we, we thought, you know, a, a cheaper version of the X7. So an Acura that's three rows, a bit bigger than the MDX, but not not like Wagoneer or Suburban size, not quite that big. Um, kind of in between, a little bit of a tweener. And then, you know, could, could be undercut BMW by 
ten or fifteen thousand dollars. We're wondering if Acura is missing out on a market niche there, or if that would be kind of just be a waste of their efforts. Well, I suppose the problem is, what would they build it on? Because they've got the pilot yeah. platform. Yeah, and that's a good, beyond, good point. You know what I mean? Bigger than that. I know you can put different bodies on the same platform. Maybe there's they does Acura. Now, someone correct me if I'm wrong, and I probably am. Play in the quote unquote SUV coupe game. Not at the moment. The ZDX right. was around for a hot minute, and that's that's been gone. I don't think there's anything like that now. Oh, I forgot about the yeah, ZDX. But... Wow. Yeah, and the Honda Cross Tour. Oof. Yeah. Um, but though maybe there's an opportunity there, which I know is the complete and utter opposite of what you're asking. <laughs> a bigger three row. I'm talking about a. You know, well, no, that's that's a fair point though. Maybe the opportunity is not in the larger three row category, but maybe it is in that smaller, uh, like Lexus NX kind of range. Maybe that's right? where they should go. It would it would stick with Acura's you know sporty ish image, especially now that they're trying to promote the Integra and the A spec, and of course we're going to have a Type S coming up. It might fit. So yeah, I'm just trying to imagine like who's going to be like. Who's going to be buying like this this huge? Uh, I got arguably huge, like Acura, um, for like what? Like you're you're thinking this is going to cost like sixty sixty five undercut something like that. Undercut we something real a, fancy. We haven't settled on an exact number, but undercutting the BMW by say ten grand. Okay, maybe. I mean, I'm just trying to think of like all the the people I know who own Acuras, and they usually don't have big families they tend to be uh either a little bit older or a little bit younger like i remember back in the day it was cool to own an acura if you were like a you know um had a white collar job and were in your Mm -hmm. late 20s and then everyone else i knew that owned an acura were in their late 40s mid to late 40s or maybe even early 50s so i mean i don't know who's gonna Mm -hmm. want a three-roll for a bunch of people i mean i could be wrong i don't have any kids like I would never buy a vehicle like this. So I could yeah, be way off, but even if I had children, I'm just trying to think of who the customer is going to be for this car. And remember to be clear here, I'm not advocating for or against accurate to build. This is just a brainstorm that Colin and I had the other day during one of our meetings. You know, we were just talking about, Hey, how, how should, uh, how should Acura proceed as the integra, the right, is the integra the right product or should they have gone up three row instead or should they put resources into both? So it, we were just kind of brainstorming out loud. Like we're, we were talking integra and one thing led to another. And that was, that's kind of what we were discussing. And I think um, you're right with what you said earlier that the integra was probably coming anyways. Yeah. And then they yeah. decided to pivot a little bit and call it the integra and give it a, give it a little bit of a twist. But can I take a moment to talk about those vents? If you've been in, have both of you guys been in the new civic? I have not. I do have an so, SI scheduled for tests in about three okay. weeks, but I've not been in it yet. So the vents, the dashboard vents in the Civic, and I assume in the Integra, because it looks like it in the picture, they're kind of behind what looks like an industrial type, a snazzy type, but industrial type mesh with like a joystick to control the um, the airflow, the direction of it. And it looks, and more importantly, feels very expensive. It's got like that real tactile click when you get back to the center. And it, it was mm-hmm. just one of my favorite parts of the car when I was driving the Civic. I thought it was really well executed. Yeah, I haven't yeah. played with it, but it does look it does look cool. 
Like it's one of the it's one of the most sort of like interesting parts of the car's interior. Like I'm looking at it right now, and yeah, yeah it just kind of runs the whole. I mean, even where there's no vent, it still kind of runs the whole dashboard. Exactly. Cool. Yeah, I, I I do think it's an attractive look on the Civic. I just haven't driven it yet. I haven't seen it up close. The closest I came was last year at an event. I was supposed to drive the Civic, and then I ran out of time, so I didn't get a chance to really play around with it. But <laughs> you were I'm playing around hoping... with the high horsepower ones. Uh, yeah, something like that. No, I think I was driving. It was one of those events where you get to drive a bunch of different cars from OEMs, yeah. and it's all over the gamut from high horsepower stuff to trucks and whatever. Nice. And I just the event closed at a certain time and someone was out driving the Civic and I said, I'll drive it when you get back. And then I looked at the clock. I'm like, nope, time to go. We're going to wrap it up. So just didn't get a chance to drive it. Um, while we're on the topic of compact cars, we're going to switch gears real briefly to finish out the segment. On our podcast last episode, we discussed the 2022 Subaru WRX and how the three of us would spec ours. And since that time, Subaru has announced that there will be no STI version, at least as of right now. Uh, and if there is an STI version in the future, it'll probably be electrified in some way, shape, or form. And I just wanted to get your guys' thoughts on that to see if it was kind of a smart decision on Subaru's part, a poor decision, if you think they're telling the truth uh, about the electrification, or if we'll, we might end up seeing a gas-powered or hybrid WRX. Well, I guess it would be electrified, but or you might see a gas-powered WRX uh, in the next year or so. Just kind of see where you guys are at with the Subaru. I don't know. Like... I the the whole that whole press release was so weird. Like it seemed like they were kind of making any excuse they could for why they weren't going to have one, and it, it, they made it sound like it was a compliance issue. And I was like, really? Like even if you just carried over like the old two liter, like I, I know it's not you know probably a high strung two liter is not going to be you know wonderful for the environment versus like a you know a super teensy tiny uh, motor that's like prioritizing like efficiency but it's like can you really not build this like you're really that worried about it so i didn't know like i think maybe they just don't know what to do like maybe they're trying to see how the current wrx is gonna sell like maybe they really are just wanting to keep going mainstream and they don't think there's going to be enough of an audience for something like the sti with with cars continuing especially like sporty cars getting like less and less and less popular and you're right about the strangeness of some of the wording because they said they look forward to incorporating the essence of STI into our next yeah, generation. Yeah, it's weird. Vehicles, right? It's weird. It's like, are they going to do like an end line? Like, is that their plan? Are they mm. going to have like appearance packages? Are they going to make, uh, are they going to like, you know, make a little beefier vehicles kind of like uh, Ford did with ST? Like, yeah, I just don't know. They didn't, they didn't really, they gave you lots to grab onto, but nothing to hold. <laughs> that's well said i uh i'm a little bummed personally because i've always liked the wrx sti but on the other hand it's not my favorite car in the segment it's not the most refined i think the golf r is the best all-around vehicle for that price and that that segment and then the honda civic yeah. type r is my favorite one to drive it's mm. it's my it's it's my favorite to drive in that segment by far although the golf r is probably a better daily driver in terms of being more refined but um you know, it is kind of a bummer just to see one less performance car on the road. I, I'm not necessarily against electrification, depending on how well it's done, because we all know that an electric motor can provide instant torque and a hybrid can uh, give torque assist. We've all driven, I think it's point, hybrids that are fun to drive. Like the mm-hmm. Now it's obviously a supercar, but the Acura NSX is basically a hybrid and it's a blast to drive. So I, I don't see even why the they crappy, can't be done. Yeah. Even crappy EVs, like the real cheap ones, like 
they're still fun to drive, you know, in like the city because most of them, you know, with the instant torque, they're kind of zippy. Like, yeah, they they don't they don't become a lot of fun on the highway. But um, you know, just kind of putting around town, like mm-hmm. I, I mean, you you can you can have some fun chirping the tires and you know at ten miles an hour with those things. <laughs> you really can. The only real beef I have is the it, with electrification, you're less likely to have a manual transmission, and not to go all save the manuals, but. The WRX STI is one of the few cars where you really want to stick, I think. It's just more fun to drive that way. And I really don't want to see that CVT, whatever they call it, in the base WRX be the only transmission and any hypothetical STI. Now, that doesn't, that doesn't mean you can't have a manual. There, it is possible, technically speaking, to have a manual with hybridization or with uh, even with electric motors. It's, it's, we've never really seen it uh, outside of concept cars, but it is possible. But, um, you know, I just it's mixed feelings, I guess, on my part. Like it's sad to see a, a, a well-known performance car fall off the market. And it's sad to see one less option in that kind of mid price entry, luxury price, high end compact sport car. But on the other hand, maybe the WRX is good enough. They don't need an STI and that's possible, you know? Yeah. And, and, and maybe the STI comes back in a different form and it ends up being a better car. I guess it's one of those wait and see sort of things. I was just going to, th- I was just kind of musing, like maybe they just don't think, it can embody this spirit. Cause I mean, the whole point of the new WRX is to be, you know, more refined, more mainstream, a more livable car. Uh, I mean, I always liked the WRX, but like you were just saying to him, like the, the golf R and, and the GTI were, they're much nicer cars to live with. They're much more car comfortable cars to be inside of. And, and that's kind of what they were doing with the, with the current gen WRX. Maybe they didn't think they could make it feel, you know, kind of raucous and raw, like the STI usually does. Like I like the STI as a car, but I wouldn't own one because it is <laughs> it is just a little bit too uh, bonkers. It's a little bit too hard, and maybe they didn't think they could make that work with the, uh, you know, with the car that they with the WRX that they have now. I've often had the same thought about the car being a little bit too unrefined. I've, that's the same thought I've always had with the base WRX too, and I think I said this last episode, but back in 2013 when the outgoing generation of the wrx was introduced i was really in love with the base version not the sti because the i didn't like the big wing and all that stuff but i really loved the base version then i drove it a few times i'm like you know this is a blast to drive it's it's great if you're on a little back road and got some curves want to have a little bit of fun but man is it kind of a pain in the butt (laughs) in traffic the clutch is heavy and it's loud and it's unrefined and the interior is not as nice as the competition and just thinking, like, you were making payments on this for three to five years, it might be a little bit obnoxious, especially if you have a long highway commute or a lot of stop and go. So I think that's kind of the same issue with the, with the STI as well, is that it's it's just a blast. And it's kind of, you know, it's kind of the ugly duckling, but you could also, for the similar money, get a car that's much more refined. And especially as you get older and, you know, maybe you're maybe you have less tolerance for a rough ride or, or uh uncomfortable seats so refinement becomes more of a um you know becomes more of a a necessity and especially if you have children or if you have uh, family and friends that you take places like i don't know if i want to drive a a significant other or a child or an elderly or an aging parent or or my best friend and his wife around in a wrx but maybe in a golf r if you're going to dinner it's a little bit easier you know what i mean so almost sounds like you 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 date the wrx but marry the volkswagen Right. Yeah, or the Civic. Because <laughs> it's still fun. Yeah. But check this out. So like... I was just looking, Matt, I was thinking about what you're saying about fuel economy. And the, the uh, WRX STI is actually rated, and I know this is NRCAN, but it's the same with the um, EPA. Um, 
at 12.8 liters per 100 kilometers, whatever that is in miles per gallon. That's thirstier than any of the company's SUVs. So there oh, might wow. be, a, okay. yeah, that might, there might be a grain of truth to what they're saying about fuel economy, corporate fuel economy standards. Yeah, I, I guess I have, I never had one for any length of time. So you don't no, really, either. when you own a car, you're constantly aware how much gas it's sucking up. But um, yeah, I guess I didn't realize it was that thirsty. So I yeah, just maybe so. drank maybe. a lot of gas because the way I was driving it. That's all. <laughs> right, because it's, yeah. it's the most enjoyable to kind of push all the time. In fact, you yeah. have to rev it up because it feels sort of gutless at lower VMs. Oh, big time. So maybe they're just like, I don't know, like they're, they're being legit. And they're like, well, how, how, you, how do we electrify this thing? in a way that, you know, is going to make it compliant, but also make it exciting. So yeah, maybe the press release, you know, was a little more valid than I always assume. Like I'm always, anytime I read any press release, I'm like, what are they trying to convince us of? Like, what are they trying to trick us into feeling? Exactly. Date the WRX with Mary, the more refined vehicle. That's funny, Matt. And on that note, we will slide into our next segment in just a few minutes here on truth about cars podcast we'll be talking about the best cars from 1997 we'll be back in just a second Welcome back to the Truth About Cars podcast. My name is Tim Healy, and the managing editor of thetruthaboutcars.com, or excuse me, for thetruthaboutcars.com. I'm here with Matt Posky, our news contributor, and Matthew Guy, our freelancer extraordinaire. And we are discussing gas prices, the Acura Integra, if Acura should do a three-row SUV that's bigger than the MDX, the Subaru WRX and the lack thereof of a new STI model. And finally, for our final segment, we're going to roll into the best cars of 1997. So if you guys remember from our first episode, we did the best cars from 30 years ago, decided kind of arbitrarily to chop five years off of that. And we'll do 25, we'll do a quarter century ago. So we're going to do the best cars of 1997. I will start, or this, this is actually not our best car necessarily, it's your favorite car. So we might throw out some crap cans here. But for me, I'm going to be very predictable. And I'm going to say that the E36 BMW uh, 3 Series and M3, that car is just as far as cars based on 1990s technology could go. It's one of the best, just one of the most balanced vehicles I've ever driven. Just fun to drive. Just it just feels perfect. It almost fits like a glove when you get one. I haven't driven a ton of them, just a few here and there. Um, but the ones I've driven have just amazed me uh, over the years. And one of the first exposures I ever had to a manual transmission was during my dealership days. I was working at a, uh, a luxury brand store that rhymes with Mexis, and we had a used mm-hmm. uh, E36 in, and I was a porter, so my job was to move cars around, move cars on and off the showroom floor, uh, clean up use, clean up the used cars for sale, that sort of thing, and that E36 sat for a while before it sold. I don't know why. It looked like it was in good shape. I think maybe the price was just a little too high. Maybe the used car manager overpriced it slightly, but it sat for a few weeks before it finally moved, and I remember like... Just any time I could get an excuse to drive that car, I would. And part of it was because I was still learning how to drive a manual. And I was like, this is just a chance to beat on a manual. It does not belong to me. And, you know, if I screw it up, I screw it up. No big deal. It's not my car, which is a little bit kind of shady thinking when you think about it. So be careful trusting your car to dealership employees. But that, all that being said, it was, you know, it was even in the parking lot of parking lot speeds 
second gear, you know, never going faster than 25 miles an hour tops. It was um, just so much fun to drive. And I was just, I remember thinking to myself, like, I wish I could afford this car, but at, you know, slightly more than minimum wage as a 17 year old, there's no way I could, but, uh, and if I could, the insurance would have killed me because 17 year old male. Yeah. There's no way I could have gotten that insured. But, um, I just love that thing. And I, I, it's one of the few cars I really remember from working there. There's like, only, there's only like four or five used cars that came through in the time that I was working there. I'm like, man, 15, 20 years later, I remember that car. And this is one of them. And it was like a light blue color, a black interior. It was an M3. Uh, it was just, it was just a lovely, lovely vehicle. And I someday would love to own an E36. What about you guys? I, uh, I have some much boring, uh, much more boring choices. Uh, like my sister had a 1997, um, Camry, Toyota Camry. And I always, I always associate like that year being like the best for that car. Mm. But I also, I also, uh, uh, my girlfriend drove a 1997, uh, Plymouth breeze. And I also love those because I can't think of any other sort of car type, um that i associate with like the late 1990s and the i i guess you guys earlier yeah it's just like you, like everyone was doing like a pretty good mid-size sedan like i would say like the the cirrus and the breeze were sort of like the the poor man's version of the camry like i don't i actually don't think they were really that much less money but um <laughs> you know they offered like similar engines sizes like i i think uh the camry uh, the what was the little engine on the camera? The two point two liter, or you get the three point oh V six, right? Yep. And then in the breeze and in, in the Sirius, you could get the two point four liter four banger, or the big two point five liter V six, and there's like a block. ten horsepower difference. But they were good cars; like they got you where they needed to go. They're really comfortable, like surprisingly comfortable. Um, and yeah, I just associate those cars like with that time period um, that and uh, high quality German cars, like you were saying, Tim, like I feel like the late nineties was kind of like one of those eras where like German cars kind of could do no wrong. Like everyone seemed to like them, mm. but also that was the time of like the humble midsize sedan and like bubble styling. Like you, like the, all those cars were just, if it wasn't high end, they were all weirdly like egg shaped. Like the Cirrus was, was when it was an egg, the Taurus had become cab an egg. Forward. Like everything had that weird. Yeah. Sort yeah. of. Yeah. Cab forward, nondescript sort of, um, uh, design. And if, if it wasn't fancy, it was definitely going to be front wheel drive, but they were good cars. I mean, I mean, the, the breeze had, didn't had last. Round, the Taurus even had a round rear window for God's sakes. Yeah, it was so wild. Like, I think at the time, the Taurus was the only car in the whole world that had round headlights. Like, like everything, th that styling, was, it, it does not appeal to me today. But um, all those interiors felt the same, especially Chrysler products. Like, all their interiors <laughs> felt exactly the same. Um, but, you know, they got you where you're going. They were comfortable. They were dirt cheap. Um and uh i liked them but um the actual you know the car i i think would probably be like the best from that time period would be would be the camry they were ubiquitous they were good uh they even came in wild colors i remember you could get them in like uh sparkling purple and stuff like that um it was just it was just a good time for sedans and i really uh i really like a sedan a mid-sized sedan both the, both the that year camry and that year accord were were really attractive cars in terms of Good size sedan designs. And they, like you said, they were definitely ubiquitous. I mean, that was, 
I was in high school, kind of starting to really pay attention to cars on the road and probably working at the dealership by then. And if, if not, it was not long before. And like definitely saw a lot of Camrys come through because we were, we had a Toyota store next door, but definitely that car was around a lot. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't like super handsome, but I, I thought it was a good looking car and I love the taillights. I love the taillights, the long taillights on the cam- the 97 Camry. That car and the Accord were handsome in a plain way, if that makes any sense. Like they weren't yeah. going to turn your head, but they didn't look bad. Mm-hmm. And that's a that's a big. I love personally. I love cars that are like that. That are sort of like they're not head turningly attractive, but they're definitely definitely good looking. And that you know that's just sort of my thing. So the Camry is a great choice there. Yeah, the Camry aged well, especially visually, mechanically. The Breeze, you know, when if you bought them both new and drove them back to back, you I really don't think you would have notice much of a difference but the camry is you know stood the test of time whereas the breeze and the cirrus like they became hideous cars and you know they none of them lasted mechanically like i i think every one i saw after like 2005 had the headliner falling down and Mm -hmm. mismatched tires and stuff and a space safer sphere absolutely yes (laughs) probably on the car that's right so mr guy what about you what is your favorite car from 1997 I'm going to pick the 1997 F-150 because that was that was the first year for that 10th generation, right? When they kind of really rounded off the styling. And today we often see people using trucks as family rigs, right? For better or for worse, that's a whole other conversation we can have in another podcast. Um, but it's because they're comfortable and it's because they're big enough. And the 97 F-150 was arguably one of the first trucks that offered a car-like interior. And it was certainly the first one that offered the third door that swings out for the super cab. And oh, that just yeah. opened up. I remember pun, that, yeah. Pun intended, it opened up a, just a world of possibilities for using the truck as more than just a work thing. So that was, it was a really significant truck. And that generation was also, this floors me when I think about it. But that generation truck in 2001 was the first F-150 to come in Super Crew, right? So four full doors, crew cab. That was only 20 years ago. And now everything is Super Crew. I know that's a bit of an overstatement, but the majority of what they sell are Super Crew. Yeah, you don't see too many uh, regular cab trucks outside of work trucks very often. You don't, right? And there was just, there were so many different... Um, neat combinations that you could get in 97 for that F-150. You could have, um, check this out, you never get this today, of course, but you could have a Super Cab 4x4 Lariat, so loaded up with all of the all of the bells and whistles and all of the options that you weren't used to seeing in a truck at that time, and you could get a V8 5-speed manual with it. <laughs> I just love that. Yeah, I mean, you really saw them everywhere too. Like, it, oh, I mean, yeah. obviously, you, you always see the F one fifty, but I, I feel like you even today you still see those cars on the road. They're yeah. all over popular culture. I think Hank. I mean, they never said for sure, but Hank Hill, I'm pretty sure, drove like a late nineties F series truck. Converted to propane, I'm sure, but you're right. <laughs> yeah, if he could. But, yeah, I think, I think about I think he okay, had a late nineties Ford and, a, and a, before that he had a Ranger. But but yeah, they were they were everywhere. Like oh, everyone you knew, somebody's dad had at least someone's dad had one. Usually, I think half the people I knew like had some variant of a truck, mm-hmm. like a full size. And pff, most of them, it was it was a Ford when I was a kid. 
and it never really changed. And yeah, those late nineties, those late nineties, uh, F series are really iconic. Yeah. And it just about introduced, that, uh... that truck just introduced the concept of having it as more than a, than a work truck. You could actually take your family along yeah. without mm-hmm. folding them into the backseat. That's about what I, that's what kind of what I was about to say too. Yeah. The, yeah. the thing with that truck is it was also the first, the Ram sort of did it in 94, but the Ram still had kind of the more macho styling, even though they rounded, rounded off the body style. Very true. The F-150 was the first really rounded off body style on a full-size truck, I think, at least with the big Detroit 3. But it worked. Like, it, they saw, it, it kind of softened up the look, but it, it, they still managed to have that kind of macho image that helps sell trucks. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, I, I remember there was some controversy over it at the time. Like, oh, it's mm-hmm. not the big squared off boxy grill you know the tough tough truck or whatever You're right. but it managed to work because it looked good and i think that i think people got over it pretty quickly i think you're right they had the jelly bean argument thrown at them i'm sure more more often than not but it did work whatever sort of studies they did with body color bumpers and chrome bumpers and things like that it was just a good looking truck it really was yeah, and a significant truck, I think. If you if you trace back what we use, most people use trucks for today, you can trace it right back to that 10th Gen F-150. I'm trying to think about how much space was in the back um, before they did like the full crew cab. Because I always remember, I always remember being jammed in the back of trucks in the, like the little, you know, jump seats. Yeah. Um, it, but I mean, if I recall it, correctly, it was much, it was much more, sp- I mean, I went, we had an S10, so <laughs> there wasn't any room back there. <laughs> but um i re- yeah i remember i remember like uh like the f series it would be in like downright livable back there i mean as a kid anyway a big kid by 97 but <laughs> yeah me too but it, it wasn't a church pew back there anymore and you had that third door which was which was just right, you could actually get in and out completely new right all right well that wraps up kind of our final segment here on the best cars of 97 or are well really our favorites and the things that we might own if the opportunity presented itself i know that i would if i had the money because i believe that e36 bmw 3 series particularly m3s are not cheap anymore the ones that remain but if i had the money i would definitely consider it uh and mr mr guy here would definitely want a 97 f-150 and matt posky is pining for the 97 camry so we're going to go ahead and wrap up our second ever episode of the truthaboutcars.com podcast look for us wherever you find your favorite podcast and uh thank you for listening and thank you for reading and we'll see you next time